From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Leela Morrison had a calling. Oh, I think I was just born to be a nurse, and I was happy all through my career, never sorry that I was a nurse. She volunteered to serve in World War II and saw the horrors of concentration camps. And I thought, this is a factory of murder. We remember Morrison, who has passed away a week after her 100th birthday. Then, police departments across Colorado struggled to hire. And later, the Colorado Theater Guild applauds a new musical about Rattlesnake Kate, whose story only begins the day she killed 140 snakes. What a time. Hi, I'm Seth Kent, and I donated a van to CPR. All we needed was the title and the keys. It was really great to be able to make a larger donation like that. We're evergreen members, but at nowhere near that level. Uh, It will take us years to match that. But it feels really great to be able to give a really significant donation to CPR, and it feels like it's put to good use, so that's good too. It is super easy to donate your vehicle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Faces would haunt Leela Morrison of Windsor, Colorado. The faces of soldiers she saw die in World War II. Morrison was a U.S. Army nurse. She treated wounded soldiers across Western Europe. And for years, she says it was too painful to talk about the horrors she witnessed. Morrison passed away this month, just after turning 100. I had the chance to speak with her five years ago about her service and her hope that people who hear her story will understand the price of freedom. A note that our conversation includes some graphic descriptions. And Leela, welcome to the program. Thank you. You grew up in Blue Ridge, Georgia, one of seven siblings. When did you know you wanted to be a nurse? Oh, I think I was just born to be a nurse. And I was happy all through my career, never sorry that I was a nurse. Never sorry. You graduated from nursing school in 1943 at age 22 and uh, shortly after volunteered to be a nurse for the U.S. Army. Right. Why? Well, I was young (laughs) and uh, single. And my mother died before I remember. And my father had died when I was 20. And even though I had wonderful siblings, I just felt like I could go and it would be easier not having a mother and dad worrying about you. Hmm. What was training like to be a part of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps? Well, it was really different than anything I'd ever been through. And by the way, I had basic training right here in Denver at Larry Field. Oh, I see. You've come full circle by being in Colorado. Yes. And, uh, oh, we had to learn to salute and march and the regulations of the Army, which I was completely ignorant of before. But it it was a lot of fun. We laughed uh, because we'd do things wrong. We had a sergeant that was teaching us how to march and right face, left face, 
you know, about face. Yeah. And we didn't know what that meant. And sometimes if he said right face, maybe I did a left one. And I'd be looking at the one behind me right in the face, and it would be so funny. I didn't realize that nurses in the Army learned all that stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were assigned to the 118th Evacuation Hospital. This is a mobile medical unit that provided emergency care in the field. That's right. You were first sent to England, eventually to Normandy, France, Mm -hmm. arriving not too long after the D-Day attack there. Yep. What was on your mind when you arrived in Normandy? I realized and had read a lot about the boys that first landed there, you know, on June the 6th. Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. And as we walked in that sand up Normandy, I couldn't help but think of all the boys, young boys that had given their lives. And I just felt like I was on sacred land, walking across where those fellows had walked and given their all. It was during the Battle of the Bulge, which began in December 1944, that you had your first real patience in in the theater of war. This was Nazi Germany's final attack on the Western Front, Mm -hmm. a surprise assault on the Allied forces in the Ardennes Forest, Mm -hmm. and it was one of the bloodiest and most brutal battles of the war. Yes. With soldiers trying to hold off a German advance in freezing temperatures. Well, we were... Like you said, uh, mobile unit, we lived in tents the whole time we were there, and our hospital was in tents. And how often would that move? We moved often as our lines would move, and uh, only two times we had to fall back because we went too close, and they said, oh, you nurses can't be up this close. Go back. We can't protect you here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And, and, and what do you remember about treating those soldiers? See, I was in the shock and pre-op uh, tent. We only took care of emergencies. And uh, we d- could not give them whole blood because at that time they had no means of preserving whole blood and get it clear over there. What could you administer? Plasma. Plasma. That was the next best thing. And we gave many, many units of plasma. And this speaks to the shock that they're in. Yes. A lot of them lost a lot of blood. You couldn't send them to surgery in shock. They had to be out of that. If that unit was moving so often Mm -hmm. and you had patients who couldn't move, Mm -hmm. how did you move a, a whole sort of mobile hospital well, we had 250 uh, regular soldiers assigned to us, and that's what they did. But they so, would have to move the patients, too. Oh, no. 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 We waited till maybe we'd be there two or three days, maybe a week, and uh, we wouldn't have sent them back unless we knew they could make it. Okay, so... Uh, you, you sort of clear out that class of soldiers, and then you pick up and move on. Yes. Got it. What kinds of injuries do you remember? It would be everything from shots through the head, through the body, through the legs. And by the way, I'd, out of the Battle of the Bulge, we had many frostbites. It was the coldest winter that it had in 50 years there. And... Uh, Many fellows lost their limbs from the frostbite. Mm. How scared were they when they got to you? 
oh, that they didn't seem scared at all. They would tell us about home and about the things they were missing and how anxious they were to get back to things. And one that I remember in particular uh, whipped out his billfold and showed me a picture of a little boy, three years old, and he said, this is my son, and I've never seen him. Oh, he'd been born after he was deployed. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Did that young man make it? Do you remember? You know, that was one disadvantage we had, being in emergency only. We never knew how they turned out. How did you, if you did, try to comfort the soldiers as you treated them? Well, you tried to be cheerful, tried to have a smile on your face. We would take time to look at their pictures and listen to them a little. Were they excited to see a woman? Oh, yes. They were very excited, and they worried about us. They said, oh, you girls shouldn't be up this far. You're far too close to the front. You know, you shouldn't be here. And we'd reassure them we were okay. (laughs) You'd reassure them? (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember close calls? We were fortunate. They never bombed our hospital. Mm. We had a great big red cross on the top of each of our tents. And that was, at least for you, that was honored, apparently. Well, that was telling the enemy we were uh, mad and we, we were unarmed. Would you ever treat enemy soldiers? Yes, we had some. Tell me about that. Well, I did feel a little funny treating them, but you know they're God's creation, too. And maybe they're there because they had to be. Uh, I've I've looked at many of the prisoners, and I would think one-on-one, I know we could be good friends. I know that enemy likes a nice home. He likes a full stomach. He likes a nice, clean bed at night, just like I do and you do. So I had empathy for them, too. So these but, are prisoners of war yes. that had been captured by the U.S. Boy, you're making me tear up on that one, Uh-oh. Layla. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, no, don't be sorry. You want the truth, though. I do want the truth. Yeah. Leela Morrison of Windsor was a U.S. Army nurse in World War II. She passed away July 16th, a week after her 100th birthday. She crisscrossed Europe with a mobile hospital unit treating soldiers on the front lines. In April 1945, Morrison experienced something she struggled with long after, a visit to the Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany just after its liberation. More than 50,000 people were killed there. We arrived in Weimar. See, it was just outside Weimar, Germany. And uh, they told us Buchenwald was there. We we, we were unaware of that. And uh, they said... Uh, this hospital unit will have to go down there in the morning and help out. So the next morning we were ready to go, and they called us and said, no, you nurses can't come. The doctors were there, and they said, conditions are so deplorable, we can't let you nurses come in here. What were they afraid of with you going in? Seeing the inside of that concentration camp. I think they were just trying to save us some heartache. Uh That was where uh, they did so many um, 
in the laboratory there. Medical did, experiments? Uh-huh, many of them. Oh, my. And with drugs and everything. So they had cleared the bodies away yes, before you arrived? they had. So we went down the next day. What do you remember seeing when you arrived? A lot of horror. A lot. Something you'll never forget. And uh, introduced us to a man from Czechoslovakia, and he had been a prisoner there for quite a while. And he took us all through, even underground. Uh, the thing that impressed me so much, I think, was the crematory. Uh, it was up on a little incline, and it was a building, a brick building. He showed us the window where they told the prisoners to uh, take the clothes off and slide down this slide into the basement. And uh, there was a big stick there, real thick, a lot thicker than a baseball bat. And as they slid down, a guard stand there hit them in the back of the head and knocked them out. Oh, my goodness. I think they gave them gas in there. Yeah, yeah. And um, then uh, had an elevator up to the ground floor. And there, it, it was a huge oven. Best I can remember, I think it was eight on each side. And afterwards, I walked down this little hill. I looked back, and I thought, this is a factory of murder. How in the world could you explain something like that? Innocent people. The Jewish people are just like you and me. They love a good full stomach. They love their children, their family. They're no different than we are. Were you able to be of any help as a nurse when you got to the camp? Were there people who needed your services? Inside the camp? Yeah. No. Uh, well, I'm sure they were, but if that, they'd be very weak. Oh, every one of them, you wondered how they could even stand up and breathe. I've never seen such thin people. So you didn't really do much treatment at the no, camp? No, not inside there, no. They had cleaned it up pretty good. Well, oh. you see, the people were anxious to get out that could, and the others, most of them were too weak or already gone. You left Europe in 1945. What do you remember about coming back to the United States? We were mighty thankful to get back to the States. And one of the things you'll probably be surprised at was the thing that impressed us so much as we looked out from the ship coming into the harbor. All the windows were in. We hadn't seen anything but all the buildings across Europe were all blown out. Oh, the fact that buildings had windows was such a different sight from what you'd seen. Well, that's true, because we hadn't seen them for the whole time. And we'd say, oh, look, look, there's no no uh, windows blown out. They all have glass in them. You had been so used to the war zone, you I forgot guess. what it looked like not to be in one. It was wonderful. Oh, how great it was to put our feet on American soil. Now, you'd expected to head to the Pacific yes. to treat soldiers fighting Japanese troops. Mm-hmm. But you never wound up going. Oh, no. We were some of the first troops that came home. And they said, the reason we're taking you home first is because your seasoned 
troops. You know what's going on and you know how to work. Uh, so we're going to take you back to the States first, and you'll have 30 days leave and then 30 days of more training because uh, working in the islands would be a lot different than going across Europe. Yeah, I imagine a whole host of different diseases, yeah. different issues. Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. And then President Truman ordered the U.S. military to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. He did. That changed the course of the war, and it changed your future. It sure did, and we were so thankful. I think for those who did not live through World mm-hmm. War II, it's hard to imagine uh, that you could find gratitude, I suppose, in the mm-hmm. dropping of the atomic bombs. Tell me about that. It was strange because they assigned each one of us to a camp close to our home to have our orders cut for a 30-day leave. And so I was sent to uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, while we were sitting on the side of the track uh, in a troop train, we had stopped there. And some little boys came by, and they said, Hey, did you soldiers hear about that great big bomb that the U.S. dropped on Japan? We didn't believe them. We said, what do you mean? Oh, it was a great big bomb. One bomb would would, uh, annihilate a whole town. And we just laughed because we'd never heard of such thing. What did you think about these bombs that sounded like something out of science fiction but had actually been real? Well, of course, first it was just unbelief. But we found out it was true, and we were so thankful they estimated our casualties at a million and a half. Hmm. So imagine a million and a half more casualties. That's what you focused on was the idea that so many more could die if the war right, continued. Right. Mm. right. Did you continue being a nurse, Leela? Oh, yes. I'm even still a nurse today. Oh. I live in a old folks' home, and uh, it's surprising I've been retired for at least 40 years. And um, some of the people that live there will come up and, oh, last night I had this and I couldn't sleep and the they get, doctor gave me these pills. Do you think that'll help me? <laughs> Once a nurse, always a nurse? Well, that's for sure. Yep. You speak about the war a lot these days. Uh, what do you think is the most important thing for younger people to understand? Well, I think to put it kind of in simple words, but it isn't simple. Freedom is not free. We paid a real high price for it, just like anybody that's in war. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I feel it's my honor to remind people of what our country's gone through, and I hope that I can impress a few how thankful we are that we're Americans. Leela Morrison of Windsor, speaking with me five years ago. She was a U.S. Army nurse in World War II and died July 16th, a week after her 100th birthday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Parts of western Colorado have been in a drought for the last 20 years. Climate change has also caused warmer temperatures, heat waves, and reduced snowpack. All contribute to conditions ripe for severe wildfires. 
fire seasons are now 78 days longer than they were in the 70s. I'm Sam Brash from the CPR News Climate Team. Here on CPR News, listen to the latest reports on climate change and sign up for CPR's weekly climate newsletter at CPR.org. There aren't enough people who want to work in law enforcement. Across Colorado, most every agency is trying to make dozens, sometimes hundreds of hires, whether it's patrol officers, detectives, even 911 dispatchers. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry visited a recent recruitment event. To understand the severity of the staffing shortages in law enforcement statewide, you really have to hear it from the officers themselves. We are hiring between 20 and 25 people for our January of 2023 Academy. We have seven open right now, but we're also a department of only 21 sworn, so that makes it hurt a lot for us. So we're currently authorized for a little over 140, and we probably need to fill about 30 of those positions. We're trying to hire 50 people for that academy. Then we have have another academy starting in April of next year, where we'll try to hire another 40 to 50 cadets. Oh my goodness, we're down, I think, agency-wide between 70 to 100. Yes, so we have 250 uh, positions that are open. So agencies are desperate. At this recent job fair in Broomfield, police recruiters were doling out promises of signing bonuses, work-life balance, starting salaries of up to $70,000 a year. Stephanie Burkhart works at the Department of Corrections, which has more than 2,000 vacancies, according to the union. We're down so many COs. We are actively recruiting for a million different vacancies. We actually lowered our age limit to um, entry-level CO1s to 18. We're accepting food service, clinical help. Law enforcement leaders say policing has taken a particular hit to its reputation in recent years after George Floyd's murder in 2020. That sparked nationwide protests calling for more police accountability and states, including Colorado, passed police reform laws. Those reforms include rule changes on use of force, body cameras, and holding officers directly accountable when they see wrongdoing on the force. Ethan Harper works at the Longmont Police Department and says even though cops grumble about change, the reform laws didn't negatively affect anyone at his agency. So when they hear reform, they think something terrible's coming, something terrible's coming. One of the best things about reform, in my opinion, is that when you really get down and you start reading what those reform bills are, they're really meant to weed out the the bad folks. That's the idea behind it. Russellis Perry, an officer at the Colorado Springs Police Department, says all the attention on police has made it hard to recruit people. And while he doesn't dislike all the reforms, he acknowledges the jobs are hard. We are people that go through divorces. We are people that have people die in our lives. You know, we and we put on the badge when we come out, and we decide to, you know, put our lives aside just to make sure civilians are okay. The problem is there's not enough understanding of that or grace given to us if we're if we're human for a change, and um, and so that's why it's hard to be a police officer. It's the scrutiny. Perry says the good news is that people who are applying right now have their eyes wide open to the realities of the job. It's not that they just saw a lethal weapon five and they, I want to be a cop now. <laughs> it's, like, it's really their call to it and it's, it's something burning in their heart. The officers and deputies at the job fair admitted that with so many shortages, the remaining people on the job are feeling the crush. Denver Sheriff's Office Sergeant Stephanie Lang says none of her deputies have worked a straight 40-hour week in months. 
They're all working extra shifts to cover the 250 vacancies in the agency. My husband also is an officer with us, and he's typically doing about eight to 12 hours in overtime every single week. So of course our goal is to be out here trying to get as many people as we can to help our brothers and sisters not have to do as much overtime or really alleviate it completely. About 200 people showed up for the job fair, roughly half of what organizers were hoping for. But recruiters say there is one thing that has helped staffing problems in the past, an economic downturn. Police jobs are seen as stable and pretty layoff proof. Some agencies acknowledge that might be the one thing that has to happen to turn things around. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. She was known as Rattlesnake Kate. I would describe Rattlesnake Kate as ambitious. And she scratched a homestead out of the rough, dry soil of Colorado's plains. It was not for the faint of heart. On a nasty, desperate day, how many snakes was it that she killed, Neela? There were 140 rattlesnakes. And that is only part of the saga, as told by Neela Pekarik, co-creator and co-star of the new musical Rattlesnake Kate from the DCPA Theater Company. It's inspired by Pekarik's 2018 concept album about Kate. The massacre began Before too long she had no bullets left Grabbed a sign right out of the ground And clobbered them to death Carrick was born in Aurora. She is a former member of the Lumineers. And her play, Rattlesnake Kate, is now up for a slew of Colorado Theater Guild Henry Awards for outstanding new player musical, acting, and choreography. I spoke with Neela Pekarik in March. Neela, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. There was a real rattlesnake case, uh, though her actual name was Kate Slaughterback, which sounds almost as made up as the nickname, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> Slaughterback. <yes. laughs> Tell us about her early years and what happened with those darn snakes. Kate Slaughterback lived out on the plains of Colorado. Um, she was born in 1898 and died in 1969. So she saw a lot of things happen in that amount of time. But she lived in rural Colorado. Near Greeley. Uh, near Greeley, yeah. Hudson, I think, was the exact spot. And she raised uh, a son on her own. She was married and divorced six times. She was struck by lightning, just a very um, resilient kind of woman. She was um, literally struck by lightning. Literally struck by lightning, yes. Okay. And as if that weren't enough, she encounters one day uh, with her child a tangle of snakes. What actually, what collective noun do you use for these snakes? Like are a nest of them? A migration? Um, I think the technical term for a group of rattlesnakes is a Roomba. A Roomba? Yeah. Okay. And w <laughs> tell us about this day. Um, October 28th, 1925, she was out on horseback with her three-year-old son, Ernie. And she hopped off the horse to open a gate and found herself in the midst of a whole lot of rattlesnakes. And so to get back to the horse safely, she decided she was going to shoot the snakes with her gun. She quickly ran out of bullets, but this had disturbed the snakes. And she describes it as... These snakes were coming for her, springing into action. And so um, she kind of went into fight or flight mode and chose to fight. She grabbed a no hunting sign from the ground and began to clobber these snakes. And she did it for two hours and killed 140 rattlesnakes. For two hours of pure adrenaline. Mm -hmm. How many times have you tried to put yourself in her shoes in that moment? 
Oh my goodness. I, I think if I saw one rattlesnake, I would just be so scared and I would not choose to fight. That's for sure. Um, and I don't know if it's sort of like a motherly instinct that kicked in, if it was just rage that was inside of this woman. Um, there were a lot of reasons for her to be angry. <laughs> yes, I Men think had so been too. pretty terrible to her. Yeah, yeah, she lived a really hard life. And so I think she was a person that had a lot of rage inside of her. Outside the particular theater at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, there is a display that brings home Kate's story. What's in the display? Yes, we have a replica of the rattlesnake dress. Um, Kate gathered the skins of these poor snakes and fashioned herself a flapper-style gown. And you can see that exact one in the Greeley Museum, but they were kind enough to lend us a replica to have out in the lobby. And I think it's so interesting that this tangible piece of evidence that she lived and that she left behind is a dress, something that's so kind of stereotypically feminine when she really defied everything that it meant to be feminine and to be a woman. Interesting. You said the poor snakes. <laughs> Does some part of you feel for the snakes? I do. I mean, I think what, I, what I've learned about rattlesnakes is you actually, they're not coming for you. You kind of have to provoke them. I don't think those snakes were going for her. I think she angered them as she started to shoot bullets at them. So I think they were just defending themselves. She has indeed a long and difficult, but also meaningful life. The rattlesnake story and the dress make her famous. She travels the world. Ultimately, though, returning to that land on Colorado's plains. And you used the thought that it was not for the faint of heart to live on that land, to homestead that land. Just expound on what drove her, so far as you understand. Yeah, it's hard to know why she stayed in the same place, because it was really difficult to farm on the dry plains. Not a lot grows, and you really have to work hard for every drop of moisture. And of course, you had to improve the land to keep it, so that was part of the bargain. That's exactly right. To get the government homestead, you have to care for it, and... Um, she talks in her letters about going out to California and how she just feels better there and she can breathe easier there and she has family there, but she never chooses to leave. She stays here in Colorado. And I don't, I don't know the reason. And, you know, home is a funny thing for people. Um, I know I've also chosen to stay in Colorado um, and I've been to a lot of other places and this feels like the right place for me to be. You're from Aurora. As independent as she is, you mentioned this, she marries six times. <laughs> yes. I guess that means she still had hope. I think so. At least five more times, right? Yeah, I think she did have hope. And, you know, she was a woman who was so independent and authentically herself at all costs. And so I think whoever entered those relationships, you know, she wasn't going to change for them. Um, but she kept trying for sure. Did you ever try her dress on? <laughs> no, it's so... Um, fragile. It's kept in this box that's like uh, temperature controlled and you have to press a button for a light to come on it. It's, and you can see the individual stitching. Um, so no, <laughs> I've not tried it on. Three different actresses play Kate at different ages, from her youth to her death. And occasionally they're all on stage together with you, actually, Neela, singing. This is from some rehearsal tape. Why three actors playing Kate? Is it just that the role is so difficult? That is certainly part of it. The role would be a lot for one person to play. And partially, you just don't quite get 
um, the authenticity of someone who's playing a 16-year-old or someone who's playing a 70-year-old. Um, and not that and Leanna's a little bit older than 16. Andrea is a quite, bit, a, quite a bit younger than 70. But um, I do think the the role spans a large amount of time. And so three women playing Kate made a lot of sense. But it also was for the harmonization part of this show. Um, I am a avid barbershop quartet nut. <laughs> well, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> I am obsessed with barbershop quartet music. Um, I got into it as a kid through my high school, my high school choir teacher, Darren Drown. That's just a lot of where my writing comes from um, and the harmonization of barbershop chords I put in a lot of my music. And so with the three Kates and myself uh, playing the role of Brownie. Brownie the horse. Brownie the horse. Um, the four of us sing four-part uh, barbershop harmony throughout the show. It's also lovely to see Kates of different sizes, ages, and colors. It's not um, bound by the kind of identity of a single actor, mm. if that makes sense. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And it was a lot of conversations that we had around that um, because we didn't want it to be confusing if three Kates didn't look the same. Mm. But I think we came back to, you know, this is sort of, we start the show as kind of a campfire tale. And we wanted it to kind of reflect more of a modern group of Colorado people telling this historical tale rather than having it be completely historically accurate that you know, Kate was historically a white woman, and we thought, does she have to be played by all white women? I mean, I, I don't think so. So, um, so far, it doesn't seem to have been confusing. And they just, all three actors, they bring so much to the role of their own story to the experience, and I love that about it. I'm going to say I was lost at first, mm -hmm. and I, in fairly short order, realized what was happening. And then I remembered thinking, it's okay not to always know. It's okay to have moments of guessing or of wondering. Is that something you'd like your audience to feel? Yes, I think I think that we put a lot of faith in the audience to be um, tuned into the story in a way that, that maybe it doesn't come across immediately, but there's a lot of devices in there that hopefully by the end yes, you get it. <laughs> for sure. But it's nice to wonder sometimes. Yes. You know, people who hear this story for the first time might think of another musical, Annie Get Your Gun, about mm -hmm. Annie Oakley, <laughs> the cowgirl who starred in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Uh, you make a point in the musical of talking about their differences. I mean, there's even a song about it, Better Than Annie. How do you think these two figures are different? Yes, um, this is no shade at Annie Oakley. Um, I actually, Annie Get Your Gun was the first musical I was in, and I do think she was a remarkable woman. Oh. Um, however, she's a different woman. And so, so often as I've told the story of Rattlesnake Kate to folks, a common response is, oh, she was an Annie Oakley type. Mm. And it made Did you me, play Annie? Um, I played one of her siblings. Okay. She has three little siblings in the show mm. and uh, they sing a couple songs. And um, I, I couldn't project very well and saying lines on stage, but I have this big voice and this tiny little body. <laughs> and so <laughs> the, the songs did well. The acting needed some work. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, she, um, you know, it's more to say that there's more than one way to be a woman in the Old West. And in fact, Annie Oakley lived a little bit before Rattlesnake Kate's time period. And so to compare them as like, oh, all stories about women in the West around this general time can be summed up by one woman. It feels like sort of a quota to be filled um, that I think a lot of folks that feel marginalized can relate to of like, oh, there's already this type of person in this type of situation. Sorry, that's already been represented. Yes, yeah. right. But of course, no one says that about like 
white male experience. Exactly. You can have a million of those tales There's told. There's tons of cowboys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that song, I Want Everything, that we heard just a few moments ago, what does that tell us about Kate's ambition, do you think? Yes. Um, every musical has the I want song, and I went quite literally with this one. Um, so if you Wait, that's like a rule of musicals? It is. I mean, I shouldn't say every musical, but that's sort of a key uh, form of musical theater is to have the I want song. So it's like my shot in Hamilton. It's part of your world in The Little Mermaid. It's one song, Glory and Rent. Don't tell me not to fly. I've simply got two. What is that for Barbara Streisand? You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, Don't rain on my parade. Yes. And they usually appear in the beginning of the show. And it basically yeah. you know, tells the audience, why are we going to sit in the theater for two hours and hear about this person? <laughs> and so when we talked about the I Want song for Rattlesnake Kate, my writing partner, Karen Hartman, and I, um, this was something she kind of assigned me, like, we need an I Want song for the show. And I Want Everything is exactly what Kate wants. She wants to be exactly who she is, uncompromising, but still de- deserving of love and respect and companionship. Um, and to be taken seriously while still being herself. Okay, to your character, Brownie, the horse. Yes. You stand with your cello. It's in front of you, but it kind of reminded me of the stick horses that you would see yes. kids running around with. <laughs> Love that. Brownie is always near Kate and reacting to what's going on with a you know a pluck of a string. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this character of Brownie and her relationship to Kate. In, in a way, I mean, maybe besides her son, it's her longest term relationship, isn't it? That's exactly right. And it's tough to write a whole musical about a woman who spent so much time by herself. Um, she didn't really have a lot of strong friendships. Um, and when we read through those letters, like, I don't know any of her friends by name, but I know all of her horses by name. Hmm. And she writes so affectionately about her horses. You know, she really bonded with them. Um, Brownie, there was another horse named Daisy after Brownie. And... Um, we thought, and we thought, what if we bring Brownie to life? And what if I portray her using the cello? And again, one of those things that might not make sense immediately, but I think we get it by the end. The, the letters that you mentioned, those are her letters? These are letters, yes, that the Greeley Museum has archived in the basement. You can go and check out all these amazing artifacts of Kate's. And they were letters that she exchanged with Buckskin Bill, who we also see in the show. Um, he was a colonel who lived in Iowa that they just struck up this friendship um, and they exchanged letters for 40 years without ever meeting. Which becomes an incredible archive yes. of her story. Yeah, I really think that's where I got most of my inspiration and, and source material, just reading through the letters and especially through her voice and kind of hearing the way she talks, um, at least through through pen. Um, that was really inspiring to me. Mm. So Neela Vikarek who was a founding member of Lumineers and uh, went on to write an album about this character, Rattlesnake Kate, has helped create a musical version. She plays Rattlesnake Kate's horse, Brownie. And I, I was rendered speechless when I heard you sing this song. Set it up for us before we hear it. Sure. Um... So on the album, there's a song called Western Woman, and we didn't um, quite have a spot for it in its true form for the show. We used the the chord structure a lot throughout. The show starts with kind of this um, motif from Western Woman, but we never got the full experience of the song. Because a musical is not a concept album. That's right. And so much of the songs from the record, I don't think any of them appear exactly as they are on the record. And part of that is has to be plot driven. And so the lyrics have to do a job, and it's so different writing for a musical than writing pop songs because you want them to be catchy and hooky and all those things that pop songs are, but you also need to get from point A to point B, and we want to feel differently 
at the end of the song than we felt at the beginning for it to do its job. Mm. And so um, in the story, you know, Kate's only real companion besides her son is her horse, Brownie, and, and she's kind of the support system to Kate. She's a witness to her story. And unfortunately, horses don't live as long as humans. Mm. And so Brownie, uh, she gets sick and asks Kate to put her out of her misery. And so the function of this song from point A to point B is Brownie has to get Kate to shoot her ultimately. Um, And so I took Western Woman from the record and turned it into Brownie's Goodbye with some altered lyrics. That song has given me goosebumps virtually every day since I heard it. I saw the show. Thank you for performing that. That's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Does it hurt to sing that song? The the reason I say, I mean physically. You hit some notes (laughs) in that that are not easy. Or is that just a, a testament to how you sing? 
that is just something my voice can do. Wow. Uh, thankfully, it's just one of those party tricks that um, kind of the <laughs> like higher belting stuff. That is a real effort. But I think it's just like scientifically the way my vocal cords come together. I'm able to do those kind of whistle tone notes without a, a lot of Strain. trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and do you know that you're doing it in a healthy way? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, we're doing six to eight shows a week and I'm so far feeling great. And I did a lot of touring on my record as well. And I've seen quite a few voice teachers in my day. So, yeah, um, I feel very thankful to have had all the training to be able to get through that. Yeah. The land seems to me to be a character. That's right. Yes. I'm glad that came across. (laughs) Oh, for sure. And the set really conveys that beautifully Um, without getting into too much detail. There's a lot of kind of rough hewn wood and pieces of the stage move so that there can be kind of tilling of the land and a kitchen table pops up and these sorts of things. Have you stood in Hudson, Colorado? And ha- and what do you feel when you do? Yes, I have stood in Hudson, Colorado. Um, and I think what we've tried to convey with the set is what I feel, which is it's vast and intimate all at the same time. These small towns kind of in the middle of the plains, whether that's Greeley or Platteville where she's buried, Hudson, where you feel like it's so small and intimate, these little towns, but in this vast Colorado landscape and you see the mountains from afar. Um, I think some people who aren't from here or who haven't spent a lot of time in Colorado, they think of it as, oh, the Rocky Mountains, but there's really all these flat plains everywhere. Um, Of course, if you've flown in here, (laughs) it's like, oh, wow, this is what Colorado looks Mm -hmm. like. And a lot of it does look that way. I love this tension between vast and intimate, which reminds me of the fact that creating a concept album is probably a a fairly solitary affair, but creating a musical is a vast team experience. How was it to take your baby and not hand it over, but to share it with so many others who had to have their vision on it? You know, whether it's lighting or rewriting or, you know, the actors, the casting. I mean, it's um, a real transition, I have to think. Yes. um, This has occupied so much of my thoughts um, through this process. And I went in, went into the project knowing this was going to be something I was going to have to do. And so I kept my expectations um, at a good place, I think, to know that I was going to have to collaborate. And in making a record... It sounds I... like you had a little talk with yourself. <laughs> yes. Mila, you're going to need to let go. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay. And I I mean, I got to make a record the way I wanted to make it. I worked with M. Ward um, as a producer, and it was such a great experience of really feeling like that is all of my own fingerprints on that album. That I didn't feel talked into any ideas. It all felt really genuine to how I wanted it to sound. You're talking about M. Ward who did Absolute Beginners? Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. I know. I'm such a fan. And I um, I had this wonderful experience of, of having him produce my record. And um, it was a great mentorship as well in terms of it was my first solo album. And so I just I think with a different producer that could have gone a different way. But uh, to really roundabout answer your question, um, the collaboration has been really exciting. And I think because I went in with the right mindset of handing over my baby, as you say, Mm. I I feel that way for sure. You really can't be precious about it. And I just keep in mind of like the set design or the choreography, like those things could have never come out of my brain. And so really kind of staying in your lane of like, I'm here as the composer lyricist and I have input on everything. But at the end of the day, like, you just try to stay in your lane a little bit and pick your battles. You know, there are certain songs that got thrown out and rewritten, and I was pretty excited to do it. <laughs> well, and to trust 
what other talents people bring to the table that you don't. Exactly. Uh And we just have an incredible team, which helps. (laughs) Before we go, do you see yourself in Kate or do you see any of Kate in yourself? Yes. um, I'm really different from Kate at my core. Like, I think she was very unapologetic and I think I'm very apologetic. (laughs) I think I tend to be a bit of a people pleaser, quite accommodating and In finding out about Kate and reading through these letters, I became more confident in being who I am authentically and really starting to advocate for myself. And so I feel like so much gratitude to learning about Kate to be able to kind of stand up for myself. And And channel that. Channel that, yeah. What was an instance? Yeah, you know, stepping into a leadership position um, has been something that's tough for me because it's not ingrained in me to kind of have those leadership skills in terms of hurting people's feelings or saying what you mean. And I think through being part of this experience, I felt much more comfortable saying like, hey, I actually, that's not okay with me. Or Mm. I do feel this way. And I I feel like I embody Kate in those moments. (laughs) Are we going to see this on Broadway? Oh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. That's the big hope. (laughs) Yeah, I tend to say um, I'm keeping my expectations low with my optimism high. Um, But I sure hope it's not the end of the journey for this. Neela, it's been lovely to see you. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Aurora singer-songwriter Neela Pekarik created the musical Rattlesnake Kate in collaboration with the DCPA Theatre Company. We spoke in March, shortly before the production ended its run. It has just been nominated for more than a dozen Henry Awards from the Colorado Theatre Guild, including one for Pekarik in the Supporting Actress category and Best New Play or Musical. Winners will be announced Monday. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You're with CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner.